It's good to see all of you here today. I'm, I'm going to say a little word before I preach this morning. I'm going I'm to say how thankful I am for you. I'm talking to you, Crosswalk. I'm thankful for who you are. I'm thankful for what you do for this church by being who you are. And that is a spiritually based prayer warrior folk people who's always open, accepting, and the love base of this church. That's what I believe about you. And I get to go down to Houston tomorrow and tell them about you. Amen. And I covet your prayers. All of the Methodist conferences are starting off this, this week, really, all across the country. And um, as you know, the state of the church will be addressed, and it's election time. We're electing for yet another general conference. But I'm praying that the Lord's moving in a powerful way uh, beyond just elections and the politics and all of the institutional trappings to change hearts. That's what I'm praying for. And I want to know, you to know this. This is what I'll tell them in Houston. You changed my heart. You did. You ready for a sermon? All right, it's a tough one today. Today we're going to be talking about steps 8 and 9 of the 12th step program. Now I know in Scott and Reagan, everybody who's been preaching this series, we all know, Didi, uh, Jeff, we all know that there are those in this room, no matter which room we're in, who know these 12th steps better than we do. In fact, Dawn Anderson sitting here, one of our clerks, she could probably do this and she probably says, oh, that's not right. Oh, yeah, well, he could have had a little help. I mean, she could critique us very well, but she doesn't because she's too gracious. But I want to read this morning step eight and step nine. Because I don't care if you're working the 12 steps or not. There is not a person in this room who doesn't need to do step eight and step nine. Some of us, it's going to take us years. But no better investment of time. Step eight. Is it going to come on the screen or do I need to read? Here it is. Made a list of all the persons we have harmed and became willing to make amends to them. How long's your list? Step nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible. Now, this next part's important. Except for when to do so would injure them or others. You know, there is nothing harder for some of us, myself especially, to admit that we have hurt another. It's painful. It's easier to make excuses that puts us in the right and them in the wrong, isn't it? And often we can explain away the role that we played in the hurt of another. But what these steps address, steps 8 and 9 that really do go together is the admission of being the one who did the hurt. 
and taking the move toward making things right. By moving into the life of the other, not with a mere I'm sorry, but a, I'm wrong. I was wrong. And I'm sorry. When moving into these steps, one does not know if the amends that you're offering are going to be met with a cold shoulder or a warm embrace. You've got to be ready, right? You don't know if you're going to make your amends and the person's going to say, well, you know, I'm sorry too. Or maybe they're going to say it's about time. Or maybe they're going to say, you know what, it's really too late for that. But when we make amends in the way 12 Step has us to do, we're not making amends that are conditional. We're not going in thinking we're going to get something back, right? If we are, we're making a mistake. To make amends the way 12 Step outlines them is to go in to make amends because it's important for you to claim the hurt and not expect anything in return. Now what we also know, we who are Christians and who base our steps in our, our faith, we know that we will get something from God. That is that freeing and that forgiveness that only God can bring. It's, it's the spirit of the living God who, who takes that weight away when we're willing to make amends. Who frees us so that we can go forward like we hadn't been able to go forward because of the weight of shame and guilt. Are you with me? I want us to read from Luke's Gospel, the sixth chapter. You, you know, AA's been around since the 30s. 12 steps since the 30s. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, was talking at what I, I think is the very basis of understanding for what the 12 steps, and particularly 8 and 9, are all about. So beginning with the 37th verse, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for the measure you give will be the measure you get back. He also told them a parable. Can a blind person guide a blind person? Will not both fall into the pit? A disciple is not above the teacher. But everyone who is fully qualified will be like the teacher. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, friend, let me take that speck out of your eye when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye. You hypocrite. 
First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to clearly take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Wow. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Yeah, that was kind of like, thanks be to God. Sure wish you hadn't said that. You know, the log eye is like a childhood disease. Jesus was the first to diagnose the log eye, by the way. And, and it's, it's like a childhood disease in that you're, you're going to contract it. It's inevitable. You might get a bad case of log eye or you might have a mild case of log eye. And it's a disease that's residual. It always is there. Sometimes it flares up. It comes. It goes. And, and sometimes it can be controlled, but not forever and ever. Amen. There's really no vaccine to ward off the, the log eye. Would that we could just have a shot and not have the log eye ever again, but it doesn't work that way. It's a sure given that you're going to get it. And get it. And get it and get it. The issue is how to control it. For you see, log eye that's untreated can kill you. I'm talking spiritually. There is nothing that's more damaging to your spiritual life than a case of the log eye untreated. It'll bring you down. Now I want to give you a little bit of a break. I'm going to go to some of my childhood memory snapshots. Now, those of you who've been listening to me for years, you probably know that I was born in the little town where I grew up, the little town of Chandler, Texas. Does anybody know I'm not from Chandler, Texas, 10 miles west this side of Tyler? In fact, I lived there all of my life until I went to college. But my earliest childhood memories, my earliest snapshots didn't take place in, in Chandler. For 18 months, we lived in the little town of Troop. Just 18 months. My dad was a pharmacist and there was a pharmacy that, that hired him to come and work there right out of college. And, 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 and we lived there in Troop, Texas. And, and my earliest childhood memories, when I can remember coming on the scene, those snapshots are from, from, from Troop, not Chandler. Now I'm going to share them with you, three of them. I'm only going to hit you with three. I can remember our next door neighbor was a guy named Buster. I can just kind of see a figure of Buster, not really. But I remember the snapshot experience with Buster. Now, I'm told that Buster was a bachelor. He lived with his mother. Buster was a loner. He didn't get out much. He didn't much care for people. And, and I can remember as a toddler walking from our little house over to Buster and his mother's little house. And the, the snapshot is me sitting at the table with Buster as he's doing what Buster did every day, all day long, drinking coffee. And Buster had this big mug. And what I remember is that when Buster would drink his coffee, he'd put his coffee mug down and he'd say, Ah! And then Buster would get me a little mug and he'd fill it up with milk and put a little drop of coffee in it. And Buster would drink that coffee and he'd go, ah. And I'd drink my milk and I'd go, ah. 
And Buster would get so tickled at that. He would do it over and over again. And we were entertaining one another, right? It was making him happy. It was making me happy. We were having a good time at Buster's table. Until mom finally found me and I think I got in trouble. But anyway, snapshot. And then the second snapshot I want to share with you is there in the drugstore where my mom and I would go nearly every day, I would imagine. My dad was working there, so we'd go there to see him. And it was one of these drugstores that had a, a soda fountain. And so there were coffee drinkers in there all the time or people there um, sharing and talking and visiting. And, and um, I remember this rubber shower hose. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, used to. They Power hoses had a big head, right? And then on the other end, they had this, uh, this it looked kind of like a mouthpiece for a tuba, except it went on the faucet of the bathtub, and so you could sit in the bathtub and take a shower. You know what I'm saying, right? Okay, well, before you took them home, they were coiled up, and I promise you it looked like a tuba. I mean, it was, had a mouthpiece, had a, had a bell, and I can remember as a little boy in the drugstore, Getting that hose and walking through the drugstore playing the tuba, the rubber shower hose, to the delight of the drugstore crowd. And they would laugh and I would play and I'd... Snapshot. And, And finally, this is Mr. John Tucker. He owned the store. He wasn't a pharmacist, but he owned the drugstore. and He loved me and, and we had this little deal we did. Mr. Tucker would pick me up in his arms and he'd take me around to the drugstore crowd and he'd say, look at this baby. Look at this baby. Look at this baby. And then he'd say, this baby's sick. And at that I'd go limp in his arms. I mean, all I had to do was hear sick. And that was my cue. And he'd take my little limp body around. Oh, look at this baby. And everybody, oh, bless that baby's heart. Bless that baby's heart. And then Mr. Tucker would say, I think he needs a shot. So he'll be well. And then he'd get one of those little hypodermic needles without the needle. And he'd give me a shot. And as soon as he got through with that shot, he'd say, there you go. And I'd perk back up. To the delight of the drugstore crowd, they'd laugh. It was so funny, and we'd do it over and over and over again. Now, I'm on the proverbial psychologist couch, right? My discovery of myself in those threads running through those snapshots, the discovery is this. Pleasing others, making others laugh, and making them happy has always been real important to me. And conversely, another thread running through this is that all kinds of people, young and old, loners and community leaders, men and women, professionals and townspeople, these people pleased me too. So not only do I have that thread of people pleasing, but people pleasing me. And I didn't have to be in the ministry very long before I realized that not all people please me. And the longer I've been in the ministry, the longer my list is of those who don't please me. 
How about you? Has your list been growing through the years of people who don't please you? You you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those people who obviously need a little fix, right? You know who I'm talking about? I mean, I've got a good list. And, you know, they just, if they would just let me get that speck out, you know, if they just let me tweak them a little bit, I could make them right. And everything would be good. And they'd be much more pleasing to me. You know what I'm talking about. Jesus knows what I'm talking about. Jesus said oftentimes the people who are on the list of people we want to fix are the very people with whom we are called to make amends. Because if we go through life knowing those people who we think we need to fix, that oftentimes it's those very people that we have judged and we have hurt. And we put our own stuff on them. So oftentimes, if you want to start your list of amends, go to your list of people who you need to fix. You can start right there. And sometimes we know we've hurt those people and sometimes we don't. But we might can assume that if we've been judgmental, we probably have. So Jesus was the first to diagnose Logi. He said that you know you have Logi if you, figuratively speaking, are trying to take the specks out of others' eye because you're judging them. You're, you're making judgments, valued judgments. You're naming some kind of little fault you think they have or annoying personality trait or our actions that are different than yours are just who they are. And you need to do something about it. You know, we look for the specks in the eyes of others to help them get to a place that makes us happier and pleases us. And Jesus turns everything upside down. Can you all see this? Can you see this speck in my eye? Can you? It's a huge speck. If it were in my eye, I'd be blind, I think. How about this? Do you see this? Well, what Jesus was saying was this. If we live our lives so consumed by others that we think we have to fix. And we don't see that we're the one who needs the fixing. That we're the only one that we can really um, control. And that we have a relationship with one who wants us to see that law guy so that that, that, that we can remove it and can see things so clearly that, that we may not even be concerned about the specks in others' eyes. And the way you get at this, this judgmental attitude, is you start with you. 
And you start naming all of those people who you've hurt. That you've judged. That you've done some action or you've said something that you know stung. You know, sometimes in dealing with addictions, we can blame it on the addiction, right? We can say it was the culprit that made me do it. It's like saying the devil made me do it, right? Jesus said, you got to get rid of that. It's the law guy that made you do it. It's you. You've got to work on you, and guess what? Lucky you. The Lord said, I'm willing to help you. And you really can't do it without me. Start with your list. And for those of us who right now are overwhelmed by the list we might have to create, I'm going to just say start with one. If you can identify one, and maybe the Holy Spirit's calling that one to your heart right now, if you can identify one and practice on him or her... Not expecting anything in return. I think the weight that you feel from that log being taken out of your eye and cast away and that burden of your heart being gone, that in and of itself will become addicting. And you'll want to do more and more and more till it's all gone. In in the fifth chapter of Matthew's gospel, that's the Sermon on the Mount. The the sixth chapter of Luke's gospel is called the Sermon on the Plain. Same kind of teachings of Jesus. They're all tough. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain and you don't feel like uh, the Lord's speaking directly to you and stepping on your toes while the Lord's doing that, then you're not reading it closely enough. And, And what we read in the fifth chapter of Matthew's gospel... You're familiar with the command to the anxious, do not murder. But I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or a sister is guilty of murder. Oh, I wish he hadn't said that. You know, I like to read through the Ten Commandments and say, oh, I don't do that. I hadn't killed yet. The Lord said, well, have you been angry? Well, maybe like 10 times a day. (laughs) Carelessly call a brother an idiot and you just might find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister and you are on the brink of hellfire. And stupid's figurative, you know. It's stupid in whatever form you call someone else stupid. Oops. Did that today. Okay. (laughs) The simple moral fact is that words kill. 
That is how I want you to conduct yourself in these matters. If you enter your place of worship and about to make an offering and you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, you abandon your offering. You leave immediately. You go to this friend and you make things right. Then and only then, come back and work things out with God. You know, if somebody has a grudge against you, it's probably because you may have done something. Grudges just, just don't come up. They usually take two to tango. And we know what the steps say about that. And we know Jesus said, you leave whatever you're doing. whatever you're, If you're worshiping me, you leave that gift right there at the altar. You leave it, and I'll go with you to whomever you need to go to and get this grudge stuff off your plate. We're going to close this sermon unlike I've ever closed a sermon before. Tom Shipp, the pastor of this church, he was pastor here for 31 years. This is the room Tom preached in. When the chapel was coming out of the ground, steel was coming out of the ground, Tom Shipp had a heart attack in a back room back there at a, at a, biz, at a finance committee meeting. Good Lord. And he was gone. This was Tom's preaching room, Asbury. And Tom Shipp, when he was 25 years old, he developed a passion for alcoholics who he could see were judged by Christians in ways you couldn't believe. This was in the 40s. The church wasn't for alcoholics and people who were doing wrong. Church was for good people, you know. And the thought of the pastors in that day was, if you're an alcoholic, you need to clean your act up and then come to church. You know, get clean, come to church, because church is for good people. You get it? <laughs> no, he didn't get it. They didn't get it. Anyway, Tom got it. And by the 1960s, Tom was recognized internationally through AA as one of the chief spokesmen in the country. Because he is a pastor of a church was so unique in the way that he could see others in need and address those needs. You know, I thought this morning it might be kind of cool for us to hear. Don has made this available. Uh, Twelve Steps made it available. You can hear the whole 33-minute address. Tom Shipp is, is introduced by Bill Wilson who... Uh, was the co-author of 12-step ministry in the big book. Bill Wilson took 10 minutes to introduce this clergyman named Tom Shipp and this church named Lover's Lane who saw things differently. So I hope the reception's pretty good. But I think it's important for us to hear a voice of our past, a preacher who really got it, tried to have a church that really got it that we need to get rid of the log eye and looking at the specks in the eyes of others and we need to be the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to our sisters and brothers in need